be here in two weeks. And if you want to bring friends, feel free to bring friends. We will not have extra child care. Now, if your children are registered and already coming here, that will be um, just like a normal day. Okay, so bring your kids. They're fine. But if you have friends who have children, we will not have extra child care. So they'll have to make arrangements to have their kids watched. But I would encourage you to bring friends to come and hear Nancy. And it might be a possibility that she may have a question and answer period at the end. I don't know that for sure. But if you're listening to her and you have some questions... She's the type of don't hesitate if she has a Q&A time to raise your hand and ask because she's open to answer anything. Okay, so be brave, girls. All right, are we ready to start? Are you awake? Okay. Last week, we learned about the fifth and the sixth trumpet judgments of the tribulation where John saw several powerful demonic angels leading armies in torment and death on the inhabitants of the earth. <clears throat> Remember, the angel of the abyss headed up an army of locust-like uh, demons that were allowed to t- torture people for five months. Remember? And then there were these four demonic angels who had been chained um, by the Euphrates River. They were released to lead this huge army in killing one-third of the remaining population. And we were reminded that we live in a war zone. There is a great spiritual battle that's being fought for our souls. And none of us is neutral. We're either part of Satan's domain of darkness or we're in the kingdom of God's son, Jesus. But none of us is neutral. And our lives are lived every day in the middle of this war. And every single one of us has to decide and choose whether we're going to live our life in fear of Satan or in faith in Jesus. It's a war between fear and faith, between rebellion and submission, between anxiety and trust. And at the center of this war is the question, will the Lord do what he's promised? Should I be afraid? Or is God trustworthy? Now we need to remember that even though they're invisible today, demons are real. And they're powerful. And their objective is to steal, kill, and destroy. And we need to take them seriously and be on our guard. But we also need to remember that even though the demons are powerful and, and um, are always prowling around looking to attack us, they are limited. Jesus is the one who's sovereign. Jesus is the one who's in control. Satan and his demons can only do what he allows them to do. And not only is Jesus in charge of everything that's going to happen in the tribulation, but remember we learned last week that Jesus is in charge of everything that happens in your life and mine right now. So we don't have to live in fear and worry when we might be blindsided by some unexpected circumstances that come into our life. Instead, we can choose to rest in faith 
and in the confidence of our all-knowing, all-powerful, sovereign Lord, that he has a year and a month and a day and an hour on his calendar for everything that happens in our life and in the world. God has a plan that he's working out in your life. Do you know that? Nothing that happens to you or me and nothing that happens in this world takes him by surprise. So when we're hit with unexpected circumstances, we can be ready when that old enemy starts whispering in our ear and says, where is your God now? And we can be ready to say to him, he's where he's always going to be, right here with me. And I'm going to trust him fully. Because he has promised, I will never, ever leave you or forsake you. With Jesus holding us in the palm of his hand, there is no need for us to be afraid. Right, ladies? Because remember, at the name of Jesus, Satan and his demons cower in fear and they run for cover. So let me ask you a question. The great battle of life is for your soul. Do you really live as though Jesus has won that battle? Good question to think about. Now, after seeing the fifth and the sixth trumpet judgments in chapter 9, when we come to chapter 10, we would expect to see the seventh trumpet judgment, wouldn't we? But instead, um, we come, instead of the seventh trumpet judgment, there's another interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet judgments, just like there was between the sixth and the seventh seal judgments. Remember when we had an interlude there? And here in chapter 10, the emphasis is going to change from the outpouring of wrath on unbelievers to the encouragement of believers. And now, even though this is a short chapter, boy, I'm glad that we're getting a break from all the suffering and the destruction that we've been reading about, aren't you? To have a little break in that? Now, some of you have asked me, and um, we are probably at about the midpoint of the tribulation at this point. Remember, we learned several weeks ago that the Antichrist will slowly rise to power as a peacemaker and a friend to Israel initially. But as we're soon going to see in these upcoming chapters, his true character is going to be revealed shortly. So if you have your Bibles with you, why don't um, you turn with me to Revelation chapter 10 and we'll begin. But before we do, let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Father, what a blessing it is to be able to come and gather together this morning, even though it's chilly, but to gather as sisters in Christ and sit at your feet and knowing that you've promised when we gather in your name that you will be right here with us. And you've given us your Holy Spirit to teach us And so, Holy Spirit, I'm asking you this morning that you will be the one that will take this word of God that we have in our Bibles and use my mouth, but you be the one that delivers the message and um, have whatever you want to teach each one of us individually. Have it pierce our hearts and give us wisdom and understanding 
and then the desire to put into practice anything that you show us today. And for, for that, that could be different from, for each one of us because we're all different, but you know exactly what we need to hear today. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask you be our teacher, and we eagerly look forward to what you have to tell us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's read Revelation chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the voices of seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and don't write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that's in them, the earth and all that's in it, and the sea and all that's in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Shoot, sorry, I forgot to hit my button again to start the recording. (laughs) All right, before we come to the seventh trumpet judgment, again, there's going to be this long interlude this time from chapters 10 all the way through the middle of chapter 11 and really on into chapter 16. And it begins with John seeing another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, with a rainbow above his head, his face was shining like the sun, his feet are like pillars of fire, and he's holding a little scroll in his hand that's open. Again, John is trying to describe something that he's never seen before as best as he can. This angel is clothed with a cloud, emphasizing that he's a heavenly being of uh, some kind, and he's on a mission of judgment. And do you remember what the rainbow symbolizes? We studied that back in chapter 4. Remember what that symbolized? It symbolizes God's mercy and grace and promises, even in the middle of judgment. It says his feet were like pillars of fire. Again, we studied that before, too. Um, This angel's mission is to announce God's coming judgment, his final judgment. Now, who is this mighty angel? Well, some scholars believe this angel is an appearance of the Lord Jesus. 
because some of the ways that he's described reflect some of the ways that Jesus has been described before. Other scholars disagree because this angel is introduced as another mighty angel. And the Greek word used here means another of the same kind, indicating that this angel is another powerful high-ranking angel like we've seen before. Now, in the Old Testament, there were instances when the pre-incarnate Jesus appeared and was identified as the angel of the Lord. But Jesus is never described simply as another mighty angel. Jesus is not like any other mighty angel or any other created being for that matter. As eternal God, Jesus is in a class all by himself. In addition, Jesus is never called an angel anywhere in the New Testament. After Jesus died and rose again and received his glorified body, it's never recorded in the New Testament that he appears as an angel again. He's revealed in Revelation as the glorified Christ. Do you remember when um, John saw him back in chapter 1 and he saw the glorified Christ? He fell down in worship. Do you remember that? Scripture consistently teaches that the next time Jesus comes to earth will be at the second coming when he comes to set up his kingdom. And this isn't the second coming of Christ to earth to establish his kingdom. Rather, this angel is making an announcement that he's coming soon. And when Jesus comes again at the second coming, he'll come as the risen, glorified Son of Man, not as a mighty angel. That's what Matthew 26, 64 tells us. Now, there are similarities between this mighty angel and another mighty angel that Daniel encountered in Daniel chapter 10, if you want to go back and read through that. And we know that the angel in, in Daniel's vision was not an appearance of Jesus, a pre-incarnate Jesus, because the angel in Daniel's vision needed Michael's help to battle a demon. But these mighty angels do reflect God's glory in their appearance. But again, let's not let Satan get us bogged down in the weeds and take our focus off what's important here. Whoever this mighty angel is, whether it's Jesus, or another mighty angel, he has great might and authority. Verse 2 says he planted one foot on the sea and the other on land, like he's staking a claim. He's claiming that this world belongs to Christ, demonstrating, that Christ, uh, demonstrating Christ's absolute sovereign authority to judge the entire earth which he's soon going to take back away from Satan. So there's not one square inch of this entire universe that's not completely under God's control. By the way, that's also true of your life and mine. There is no part of what's happening to you right now that's not under the control of Jesus or what's happening in this world that's not in the control of Jesus. It might seem like it's out of control, but it's not. He is sovereign over it all. It doesn't matter if it seems to be a random cancer cell or a spouse who walks out or a child who's wandered away from God or a financial crisis that's hit you unexpectedly. You might think these are all random circumstances 
But they're not, ladies. Every single part of your life is under the control and the power of Almighty God. Isn't that a reassuring truth? That's what this angel is representing, that this whole world belongs to God and is under his sovereign control. And as he took claim of the earth, this angel gave a loud shout. And when he shouted, verse 4 says that voices, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. I have no idea who the seven or what the seven thunders are. So don't even ask me. I can't tell you. But John was about to write down what he heard. But a voice from heaven said, stop. Don't write it down. Seal it up. For the first and only time in the book of Revelation, John is prevented from writing down the revelation that he's been given. These are the only words in the book of Revelation that John was prevented from writing down. Everything else he was told to write and reveal. We aren't told why he wasn't allowed to write this mysterious message down. And it's useless for us to speculate because we just don't know. We do know that both Daniel and Paul were also prevented from from sharing some things that God revealed to them too. Now, why does God do that? Did you ever stop and ask yourself? Why doesn't he tell us everything? Well, maybe it's because he knows we can't understand everything. Maybe the timing isn't right. There are just simply some things God chooses not to reveal to us. But he has revealed everything that we need to know. And everything that he wants us to know. I love Deuteronomy 29.29, don't you? That says the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Period. We don't need to worry about them and question them. They belong to God. But it goes on to say, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever so that we may follow all the words of the law. So ladies, we don't have to know everything to trust God and be saved. God has revealed everything that we need to know to follow him. He does leave some details unrevealed, maybe so that we'll learn to trust him or to cling to him and seek him for wisdom and direction. We don't know all of his reasons, but there are some things that he's just chosen not to reveal. Now, let's just stop here for a minute and chew on that. There will always be things in our life that we won't understand. Again, God reveals in his word all the things that we need to know, but he doesn't tell us all the things that could be known. I don't know about you, but it's amazing just how much I don't know. I don't know what tomorrow will bring. Do you? I don't know how long my life will be. Do you? I don't know how in the world the sun and the planets just hang in midair. I don't know the motivations of my own heart, let alone anybody else's hearts. I don't know how many parts of my body function. I don't know how my brain functions. Or more so these days, I don't know why it doesn't function. 
I don't understand why God brings some things into my life or takes other things away. I could fill hundreds of pages with things that I don't know. And on top of that, there could be hundreds more pages with, filled with things that I don't know, but I don't know that I don't know them. Can any of you relate to that? There's just a lot I don't know. But think about this. God knows absolutely everything. I might not know what's coming around the corner in my life or exactly how every detail we're learning about in Revelation will play out. But God does. And he's in control of all of it. I don't have to understand it all because my Lord understands it all. When we really come to trust in the truth that God has told us everything we absolutely need to know, then we can rest. Not because we know everything, but because he knows it all. And he holds us in his hand. See, peace is never found in trying to figure out every mystery in the Bible or why God allows trials or suffering to come into our lives or why he takes other things from us. Peace is found in trusting the one who controls all the things that we don't understand because he's planned it all. My peace and trust don't rest on my understanding but on God's sovereignty and on his character. See, if you trust only when you understand, you're going to live with a lot of anxiety and doubt because there are simply things that you and I will never be able to fully understand this side of heaven. I want to read you something from a devotional that I have. Some of you may have heard of it or have it. It's called New Morning Mercies by Paul Tripp. Any of you heard of that? I think this is a great illustration. Listen to what it says. He says, we really don't know much. Every day we're all greeted with mysteries. None of us can predict for sure where our personal stories are going. We're all confused about what happens to us, to those close to us, and in the world in which we live. As much as we try to make sense of our lives, there are things that we simply aren't able to understand. Here's what all of this means. You and I will never find inner peace and rest by trying to figure it all out. Peace is found in resting in the wisdom and grace of the one who has it all figured out and rules it all for his glory and our good. And then he shares this story. He says, when our children were very young and I wouldn't let them do something, they didn't understand why, so they would begin to cry and protest. I would then get down on my knees so that we could be face-to-face. And then I would talk with them, and the conversation would go something like this. Do you know that your daddy loves you? Yes, I know my daddy loves me. Is your daddy mean and bad to you? No, you don't like to be mean. Is your daddy a horrible bad daddy? No. Then listen to what daddy's going to say. I would like to tell you why I had to say no to what you wanted to do, but I can't. If I explained it to you, you wouldn't understand anyway. 
So here's what you need to do. You need to walk down the hallway and say to yourself, I don't understand why daddy said no to me, but my daddy loves me, and I'm going to trust my daddy. And I really do love you. And then he goes on to say, there's so much we don't understand. There's so much we're incapable of understanding. And today, your Heavenly Father is saying to you, I know you don't understand all that you face. But remember, I love you. Trust me, and you'll find the peace that can be found no other way. I just love that. Ladies, there are simply things that our Lord, for whatever reason, has chosen not to reveal to us. But let's choose not to get hung up on those things. Instead, leave them in his capable hands and simply trust him. Knowing that he loves us and is in complete control of all things. Isaiah 26.3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You guys might want to highlight that verse, Isaiah 26.3. We don't need to spin our wheels trying to guess and figure out what God hasn't revealed to us when we have plenty to keep us busy with what he has revealed. There's always going to be things that we don't understand, and that's okay. Let's focus on living out the things that we do understand. Do we have enough in that? I guess you guys have all got it figured out. I got enough to to live out. So, verse five says that John saw that the angel was stand saw the angel that was standing on the sea and land raise his right hand and swear by God's authority that what he was about to say was true. Just like a witness. Um, raises his right hand to take an oath in the courtroom to tell the whole truth. We've seen that before on TV. But this angel raised his hand towards heaven and swore by God's authority that there would be no more delay. That when the seventh angel blew his trumpet, it would lead to the mystery of God being accomplished, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Now, a biblical mystery is a truth that hasn't yet been fully revealed. Verse 7 says that this mystery had been announced long ago through the prophets and now is the time that it's coming, is complete coming, or complete fruition is coming. So what is this mystery? It's the completion of God's plan in bringing his glorious kingdom in Christ to fulfillment. Satan's power in the world is going to finally come to an end and Jesus is going to take his place on the throne. God had revealed this plan through the prophets like Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah and several others in the Old Testament, but a lot of the detail wasn't revealed. More of it was revealed in the New Testament, and even more details now are coming here in the book of Revelation. It's kind of like when we teach our children, we teach them a little at a time as they're able to comprehend and understand it. Well, just like that, God is unfolding or revealing his plan a little at a time. But a day is coming when all the predictions of the Old Testament prophets will be fully revealed and God's plan will be fully brought to full completion and will understand how everything worked. 
Doesn't it seem strange that God has allowed Satan to rule this earth and men for thousands of years? I mean, Satan has warped and twisted and scarred and almost completely wrecked all of creation. Why has God allowed him to do that? I mean, we know that God's more powerful than Satan and the demons. And we know that Satan's power is limited by God. So why has God allowed him to get away with this for so long? That's a mystery to us. But God has a plan. He knew in the beginning exactly what he would do, when he would do it, and how he would do it. That might be a mystery to you and me, but it's not to God. And the time is quickly coming when his plan is going to be completely fulfilled, and then we'll understand and know, know it all. So this angel lifts up his hand and announces, time is up. Christ's return will no longer be delayed. When the seventh trumpet sounds, the seven bold judgments will begin and the tribulation period will rapidly come to a close and Jesus will return. Now in verse 8, John is told to go and take the scroll that the mighty angel was holding in his hand and eat it. Now, is that a bizarre command or what? Have any of you eaten a scroll or pages out of a book? And this isn't the first time that one of God's prophets was told to eat a scroll. Both Ezekiel and Jeremiah were told to do the same thing. Notice in verse 9 that John went to the angel, instead of taking the scroll, John went to the angel and asked him to give him the scroll. But the angel told John to take the scroll. He didn't give it to him. God won't force his word into our mouths and force us to swallow and receive it. We have a choice to take it and to eat it. It wasn't enough for John just to take the scroll. He was told to eat it. John was to take the scroll and digest its contents to completely absorb its prophetic message of judgment. It wasn't enough for John to see the scroll or to know what it said. He had to internalize its message because what he was going to write and share with other people wouldn't be his own words, but the words that God had put into him. Verse 10 says that when John ate the scroll, at first it tasted sweet, but then it turned bitter in his stomach. What does that mean? In what ways is God's word both sweet and bitter? Well, it'll be either sweet or bitter based on the audience who's hearing it. To unbelievers, this message of revelation is bitter news. Jesus is coming back as judge. That's not good news if you're not a Christian. But to believers, it is good news. It's sweet. Because Jesus is coming back to reward those who have put their faith and trust in him. So based on the audience, this message of God's word can be both bitter or sweet. It can be bitter or sweet based on content. In the book of Revelation, there are some terrible events that are going to happen. We've already studied some of those terrible things. But in the same book of Revelation, there are some triumphant events that's going to take place, like the return of Jesus and his millennial kingdom where perfect justice is going to reign on the earth, and then the new heavens and the new earth 
It can be either bitter or sweet based on the effect of our life or the, the effect on our life. When we make God's word a part of our life, when we take it in and allow God's word to speak to us, it causes both hurt and healing. It can be both bitter and sweet. Think about this. If you, if you had to go to the surgeon for him to take out a cancerous tumor, he has to take his scalpel and cut you open first, doesn't he? He has to hurt you. But the reason he brings that hurt and opens you up isn't because he's mean. It's because he wants to bring healing to you. But the only way that he can do that is to hurt you by cutting you open first to bring you healing. And the same is true of God. And do you know what the scalpel is that God uses? It's his word through the Holy Spirit. God uses his word to produce both hurt and healings in our lives. Um, The Bible says the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It brings conviction and hurt into our lives. And that's bitter and unpleasant. But it also brings healing. God has to use his word to show us our sin. To show us that we're separated from him. To show us the consequences of remaining in our sin and refusing to repent. And that hurts. But he convicts us of our sin in order to bring us into a relationship with him. And to bring us the abundant eternal life that he wants us to have. So we can trust that all of God's ways are good. The sweet and the bitter. Because he is sovereign and because he's good, he's going to do what's best for us. And finally, the word of God can be sweet and bitter based on the message that we're to share to others. See, God was, or John was commissioned to tell the twofold message of God, the whole truth, the, both the bitter and the sweet. God's word contains sweet promises and assurances, but it also contains bitter warnings of prophecies and judgment. And only a false prophet tells the sweet and fails to tell the bitter parts of the word of God. For John, there would be joy and sweetness in proclaiming God's truth, but also sadness and bitterness in thinking about people rejecting it and what would happen to them. Notice that John was not told to deliver this final message to many peoples and nations and tongues and kings, but about many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. John was chosen and commissioned to describe God's final wrath upon the earth, as well as the final redemption of those who trusted in him, which is exactly what he faithfully does in the remaining chapters of Revelation. Now, just like John, you and I have been given an assignment. Jesus has given each one of us a crucial mission to share God's message of grace and the warning of coming judgment with the world. The message of grace is sweet, and we like sharing that, right? The message of judgment is bitter, but we have to share that part, too. We're to share both, 
We can't just share one and not the other because that would be a false message. But like John, before we can be a spokesperson for God, we must eat the word of God and digest it ourselves. So I thought that we would close today and I want to give you five very practical ways that you and I can eat God's word. To make it a part of our lives. Now for some of you this is going to be a review. But it's a good reminder. Some of you may hear this and it may be brand new to you. But how do we take the word of God and eat it? You know, the angel or the voice told uh, John to go to the mighty angel and the scroll was laying open. Or the book, some of your your, um Versions say the book was laying open in his hand. John was to go and take that book out of the angel's hand, right? So how do we take that word and then eat it? First, we have to listen to the word of God. So let's picture this as our thumb. We're going to grab this word. First is our thumb. Listen to the word of God, okay? Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. There's something really powerful about listening to the word of God. And God's given us the privilege today of being able to listen and hear God's word in many, many ways. Um, We can listen to the word being preached at church. We can hear messages on Christian radio. We can listen to podcasts or online. Isn't it a blessing that we have so many, many ways of listening to God's word regularly? I mean, we can listen to God's word practically any time that we want to, at least for now. Are you taking advantage of it? So we need to listen to God's word, but that's not enough. Second, let's think of that as our first finger. We need to read the word of God. Psalm 119.18 says, Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. There's something powerful about reading the word of God in addition to listening to it. And hopefully, as this new year begins, you have a plan for regularly reading the word of God. It's good to read through all the word. So we're to listen, we're to read the word of God, The third finger were to study the word of God. 2 Timothy 2.15 in the Amplified says, Study and do your best to present yourself to God approved, a workman who has no reason to be ashamed, accurately handling and skillfully teaching the word of truth. So not only are we to listen and to read the word of God, we're to study it. Take in all the details. See how parts of the Bible fit together. And that's what we try to do here at Creative Living. I don't know about you, but when I first became a Christian, I, you know, went to church on Sundays and I heard the Word of God, listened to it, and I read the Word of God. I tried to read it and I I understood some things, but a lot of it I didn't. But it wasn't until I came to Bible study and started to study the Word of God that I really began to learn and grow in my faith. Have any of the rest of you had that experience? 
I mean, we can listen to it and we can just read it, but when we study it, that makes our uh, faith even deeper and we, we tend to grow. So we listen, we read, we study. The next finger is we memorize the Word of God. Psalm 119.11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now, how many of you find memorizing scripture hard? Well, yay for the rest of you. Um, you're not alone if you think it's hard. It is hard. It takes effort. But let me ask you a question. Do you know where to turn when trials and difficulties suddenly hit in your life? Do you know where to turn if you're dealing with anxiety? Or what if a temptation begins to pull at your emotions and your will? Do you know what scriptures to turn to that can help change your heart and your attitude to help you flee that temptation? If you wait until you're in the middle of it, or if you wait until you're in the middle of a crisis to figure it out, you might be in trouble. The time to put God's word into your heart is before a crisis hits. Do you remember when Satan tried to tempt Jesus when he was in the desert? Jesus didn't respond by just simply throwing out random scripture verses, did he? He immediately responded with the exact scripture that dealt with the temptation that he was facing. But the Holy Spirit can't bring the word of God to our minds if we haven't stored anything in there. Yes, it takes effort and discipline to to memorize God's word, but it can be done if we really want to. I mean, we had our children's program just a few weeks ago. Look at the amount of scripture the kids in our children's program are memorizing. That puts me to shame. (laughs) Think of how many songs that you can sing and know every lyric to, even from songs you learned way back in high school. Am I right? You know every word. So it can be done. We just have to want it enough to keep trying. So I would tell you, don't give up. Keep trying. Like Ann says, you don't have to memorize it. Just keep saying over and over and over and over, and then you'll know it. So, Or try to set it to a, a tune, maybe. Maybe that's, I think maybe with music, it helps us to learn better, but... So we listen, we read, we study, we memorize. Last finger, we meditate on God's word. Joshua 1.8 says, Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and successful. Now, what does it mean to meditate, ladies? Does it mean we get in some kind of trance and we're like, hum? No, that is not what biblical meditation is. Meditation means that you turn it over and over and over in your mind. It's like a cow chewing on its cud. You just keep bringing it back up and you think about it. You think about what we're learning and how to apply it to your life. And I think this is one of the hardest things to do. How many of you work on your lesson and then you come to class and you talk about it in class, you come in here and you listen to the lecture, 
And then a couple days later, when you start working on the next lesson, the first day question says, what was one meaningful thought that God, that you had from your lesson or lecture? And you've forgotten everything you just talked about. Anybody? It's true because Satan does his best to try to snatch things away from us and get us busy and distracted so that we won't really think about and meditate on what we're learning. He doesn't want the word to change our lives and our way of thinking. So that he doesn't want us to start living it out. Now, ladies, God didn't give us his word to make us smarter sinners. He gave us his word to make us more obedient disciples. So we're to think about what we're learning and what we're listening to and what we're reading and memorizing and how it applies to our life and make changes that God shows us are necessary. And yes, God's word may hurt and convict us and tell us to make some changes or that changes are needed, but ultimately that's so that he can bring blessing and abundant life in Christ to our lives. So if you want to experience God's blessing in your life, you not only have to take God's word in, but you have to make it a part of your life to live it out and do it. And it's hard. We have to be intentional about meditating on what we're learning. So how do we take and eat God's word? Say it with me. Listen, read, study, memorize, meditate. And after we've done that, it's, it will be absolutely useless, useless if we've done all five of those things and we've not start putting it into practice. The ultimate goal is that we do it, okay? And then one final thing. After we've taken the word of God and we've eaten it or made it a part of us and we start doing it, the last thing we need to do is share it with others. Share the word with others around you. That's the job assignment that the Lord has given us until he calls us home. John was faithful to complete his job assignment. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us to be faithful in ours, shall we? Father, what a wonderful break we've had in this chapter. And and learning and seeing that you are absolutely in control of everything. Not only everything in this world and during the tribulation, but in every single day of our lives. Help us really to understand that so that we can live our lives in faith in you and not in fear. And Father, remind us this week to get into your word, to read it, to listen to it, to read it, to study it, to memorize it, to meditate on it. And most importantly, to do it and live it out. And then to share what we're learning with those around us. If there's one woman here this morning that does not know you personally, Father, I pray that today would be the day that she would be bold enough to open 
the door of her heart and her life and invite you to come in. And Lord, I know that there are people all around us who don't know you. Help us to be faithful in sharing your word, both the the sweet but also the bitter. The salvation message of grace but also the warning of judgment if, if Jesus' grace is refused. Help us to be faithful in sharing both so that more and more can be brought into your kingdom and spared what's coming in judgment. And it's in Jesus' precious and holy name we ask. Amen. Thanks, ladies. See you next week.